Pray with me this morning. Lord God, I, I thank you for this place. Um, God, I thank you for what you're doing here. I thank you, Lord, that I just uh, I get to be a part of it. God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come here this morning. That you would fill our hearts and our minds. That you would open them to your word, to your direction. God, I pray that you would just remove any sin that would prohibit me from sharing your word this morning. God, I pray that it will be your words that are spoken here this morning and not mine. I'm thankful for you. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, are you familiar with the phrase, uh, when the cat's away, the mice will play? And uh, when the pastors were getting ready and packed up to head over to Jerusalem for the next couple of weeks, the, the jokes started flying about Robbie and I before they even left the door. That, that any ideas of turning Wilson Hall into a laser tag arena or, or uh, turning the sanctuary into a water park you know, ought to be prohibited. I like the idea of a wildlife petting zoo. Uh, which is something that Jared said. I think, I think we ought to go for that. But, um, you know, this past week, it reminded me of a time uh, when I was in high school and my parents went away for the weekend. And they told me they had some strict rules and they said, you know, we don't want anybody uh, in the house while we're away. Uh, so naturally, I threw a party when they went away. And uh, I remember uh, being real nervous about it, but I had this party and I thought I had planned it all out on uh, Saturday was the party, and I left myself all day on Sunday to, to clean up afterwards so that there'd be no trace uh, that anybody had been in the house. And Sunday came, and I was cleaning up, and uh, it was really strange in our house growing up. Rather than having, like, towel floor or hardwood flooring, in our kitchen we had this, uh, like, bleach-white carpet in the kitchen. And as I thought that I had everything cleaned up and I had covered my tracks, I looked down in this carpet, and I saw a big... Uh, brown spot and I panicked and I grabbed every cleanser I could and nothing would get this spot up I went out and I bought new stuff and I came back and I cleaned and cleaned and cleaned and nothing would get this spot up and I just remember that my parents were coming home soon and I had this pit in my stomach of guilt and of shame and I knew that I had to come clean to my parents as soon as they walked in the door, I rushed up and I said, I know you're going to be mad. I've got to confess. I'm so sorry. I had a party and I tried to clean things up, but there is this spot on the carpet in the kitchen and I'm so sorry I, I couldn't clean it up. And then my mom reminded me of how my Uncle Sam dropped the turkey at Thanksgiving on the carpet and created that spot that I had nothing to do with it. Young people, may that be a lesson that your mom always knows. She always knows. I wonder if you could relate to that, to that pit in your stomach uh, when you've done something wrong, when you've, when you've messed up. Maybe you've been in trouble. I remember first feeling that sensation when I got called to the principal's office in school and I had to walk that super long walk down the hallway just wondering what it is that I have done. Maybe you've been in trouble at work, or maybe you've been in trouble with friends, or maybe you've been in trouble with your wife. Uh, if that's the case, we could start a little small group, because I've been there many times, and we could talk about it. There's that feeling in your stomach of when you messed up. And I really believe that in this encounter with Jesus, that that must have been the way that Matthew felt. That Jesus had this reputation as this great religious teacher, 
and he was starting to build this reputation, and people were following him around, and, and down the road he comes while Matthew is sitting there in his tax collector's booth needing to answer for some of the ways that he's been living his life. Let's take a look at it. Matthew 9, it begins at verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Now, many of you probably know the reputation that tax collectors had during biblical times. This was a time where Rome uh, had uh, overpowered uh, this Jewish nation, and, uh, and they allowed them to live uh, as long as they put men in the army and paid taxes upstairs to Caesar. And so they needed men to be able to collect these taxes. And, uh, and what they would do, these tax collectors, is let's say you owed Rome eight bucks for taxes. Well, these tax collectors would then charge ten bucks. And that's how they made a living. And they made quite a living because they had the whole Roman Empire enforcing however much they wanted to steal. So tax collectors... Uh, weren't liked very much, as opposed to the tax collectors we have today, which, we, of course, we love. <laughs> but more than that, Matthew particularly was a traitor because he was a Jew who was selling out his people to make money for this oppressing government. So Matthew particularly uh, was hated by everybody. For Matthew, this was more than a job. This was his identity. This was who he was. He was all wrapped up in this sinful job that he had. And I wonder if how many of you could relate to that today. That our jobs are very easily become our identity. I mean, it's even mixed into how we speak to one another. When we first meet somebody, uh, we often get too quickly, well, what is it that you do for a living? Or uh, if you're like me, sometimes we measure uh, our value by our performance at work. And I've walked with people who've lost their jobs. And it's like they've lost their entire identity of who they are. Because they put their whole identity, rather than in Christ, in something that is easy to lose. We shouldn't, but sometimes we pass judgment when we discover what somebody does for a living, either good or bad. Now, imagine this. That your identity is completely wrapped up in something sinful, like Matthew's was in being a tax collector. I could really relate to my identity being wrapped up into my job. So many times I, I, uh, I often forget uh, that I, I'm doing the work of the Lord, and I wrap myself into my job, and I think, I, I am my job. And I wrap my identity around that. This is what Matthew must have been doing. And it was a sinful uh, place to be that he was completely wrapped up in his sin, that his uh, identity was that him and his friends were known as notorious sinners. I really believe that Matthew must have had a pretty deep pit in his stomach when he encountered Jesus for the first time. Let's continue. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. If you don't know my story, uh, when I was in college, I walked really far away from the Lord. I was wrapped up in a completely sinful lifestyle. I had grown up in church. I had a great youth pastor, but I really, I really walked away from that. And there was this time when I was in college that my youth pastor, I'm not sure if he had heard about me or knew where I was. I, I don't know that, but I, I know that he tracked me down. 
And he found me and he bought me lunch. And I can remember having that same pit in my stomach. Uh, this man who I'd loved, who had loved me, who had taught me about the Lord. And, and uh, I thought I was going to have to share with him the way I had been living. And before, when I started kind of pouring out the way I'd been living, and uh, he stopped me, he interrupted me. And uh, I'll never rem- uh, forget because I get emotional about it, still thinking about it. He said, hey, Doug, why don't you just drop everything? I'm starting a church down in Pittsburgh, and I want you to be involved. And I can just remember this feeling that poured over me. Why would you want me? You don't know the way I've been living. You don't know what I've been doing with my life. How could you possibly want me? If you knew, you wouldn't want me. I dropped it all. I I quit school. I broke the lease of my apartment. I moved down to Pittsburgh because for me, it was a new opportunity, a new direction, a possibility of doing something different with my life. I wonder what Matthew was expecting when Jesus walked up to him. And I love this story so much because it's not just a story about Matthew, but it's a story about me too. I bet you Matthew was expecting that Jesus was going to condemn him. That Jesus might publicly ridicule him like the rest of the religious teachers do. That maybe as Jesus walked by with his followers, he would point at Matthew and say, see that sinner, don't be like him. But what Jesus did was amazing. Not only did Jesus offer Matthew an opportunity to... to, uh, to change his life, to get a new direction. But it's like he offered him a new job. He said, come, follow me, and be my disciple. Today, whether you realize it or not, Jesus is offering both you and me the same thing. No matter how you've been living your life, no matter what choices you've been making, no matter what direction you've been going, Jesus is making us the same offer. Come and be my disciple. I wonder if you think of yourselves as disciples of Christ. In biblical times, there was uh, three uh, different ways that we would see this word disciple. In the Old Testament, uh, we would see the disciple as as one person um, who was learning the the trade of a senior and would follow him around. He was a student, a learner, or an apprentice is a word we might use today. Uh, Moses had Joshua. We could read about that. David had Solomon, his son. Uh, Elijah had a man named Elisha. And you would see this kind of one-on-one relationship. In the New Testament, uh, this grew to being groups of people that would follow uh, around not just someone for a job, but a religious teacher, uh, a rabbi, if you will. And it was a really prestigious thing to be chosen uh, to be a disciple. It didn't happen for just anybody. John the Baptist had disciples. Of course, Jesus had disciples. In the early church, though, disciple was a synonym for our word Christian. Because they didn't use that word. They didn't use that word Christian until uh, years later we read in in the book of Acts chapter 11 that the first church to start calling uh, the disciples Christians was the church in Antioch. So disciple was a synonym for Christian. But what Jesus did was he took this word disciple, which had been used a lot, And he put new meaning to it. About ten different times Jesus said, If you do this, then you are my disciple. You are my disciple if you do these things. If other people see this in your life, then you are my disciple. 
And when we read the calling of Matthew, we could actually see a lot of these statements that Jesus had made uh, being pointed to, being alluded to. So today what I want to do in the time I have left is cover uh, five indications of a disciple of Jesus. Uh, The first one is this. A disciple loves Jesus and spends time with him. We see in Matthew... uh, What happened later, verse 10, later Matthew invited Jesus to his home. So a disciple loves Jesus and he spends time with him. Now you would think that that's like a no-brainer. But I don't know about you, but I oftentimes forget to spend time uh, with the boss, right? Uh, Forget to spend time with the Lord. I can't tell you how many times like I'm just... Uh, brought to my knees because I have some big event that I'm planning or something. I totally forgot to talk to God about it. And uh, I think we struggle with this. But let me ask you a question. Who do you love in your life? Think in your head. The people that you love in your life. I guarantee you that you make an effort to spend time with those people. And Jesus says it this way in John chapter 12. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. I think about uh, those times when I started a new job. I needed to be trained. And so I needed to meet with the boss to learn the new way uh, of how to do things here at this company. And I think to myself, what if I were to say, hey, you know what, that's great, but I got some plans with my friends today. I don't think I can make it. Or I've got a really busy week coming up. Uh, can we try this uh, next week or at another time, right? I, I don't think I would even be allowed to work at that job, right? And there's, it really comes to play here as a disciple of Christ because there's no such thing as a part-time disciple. You're either all in or you're all out. I've learned some things about spiritual growth. That Spiritual growth is a choice. It's a choice that we make. A pastor once told me, I'll never forget it, you are only as close to God as you want to be as you choose to be. Because if you want to grow, you need to develop a daily time with God. Of all the years I've been in ministry, I've learned that this is the most important thing. So if you hear nothing else today and you walk out of here, remember that spiritual growth starts with a daily time with God. It's not automatic. It's intentional. And I know this to be true. It was my birthday this past week, and I'm Noticing I'm getting older. And I've looked around at a lot of people that I've known in my life, and maybe you've seen this too, that someone has the ability to grow old without actually growing up. You ever see that? Right? Spiritual growth is the same way. It's a, it's a choice. Spiritual growth is a, a commitment. We grow by making commitments. We make commitments when we get married. We make commitments when we have kids. We make a commitment when we start a new job or when we... Go off to college. In fact, if we don't make commitments in our lives, we tend to live in immaturity. And spiritual growth is about a relationship. It's not about rules. It's not about rituals. It's not about religion. It's about relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must love me above everything else. In fact, Jesus said it this way in Luke 14, a very controversial thing that he said that a lot of people have struggled with. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Is Jesus calling us to hate? Absolutely not. But he's saying that my relationship with you needs to be so much greater than everyone and everything else that it would look like you hate them. 
That's how much you need to love me. So how do we do this today? Well, we've got to spend time with him. We've got to spend time in his word. You've got to talk to God all the time. I just talked to him a few minutes ago. Oftentimes people will say to me, Doug, I'm really struggling. There's a direction in my life. There's a choice I need to make. And I just need to know what I'm supposed to do. I just need God to lead me in my life. And I tell them the same thing I I tell myself. When I feel like that, I ask myself, well, how much time am I truly spending with God? How much time am I truly into his word? There There was a time when I was desperate to hear from God. I was real young. I was desperate to hear from God. And I don't know if you've ever done something silly like this. I had a postcard, and I said, you know, God, I'm going to go to sleep. And when I wake up in the morning, would you, would you write down, would you write down what it is I'm supposed to know, what it is I'm supposed to do? And I, I woke up in the morning, and there was nothing written on the postcard. But I'll never forget, on my way out of the room to the shower, I tripped over my Bible on the floor. And I thought to myself, why would God write something down on this postcard when he's already written it all down, everything I need to know right here? A disciple loves Jesus and spends time with Him. Here's the second indication. A disciple of Jesus introduces others to Jesus. We see that's what happened with Matthew. In verse 10, later Matthew invited Jesus and His disciples to His home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. We know that Matthew's life was transformed by Jesus. We don't know how much time that transformation took, if it took a number of years or if it happened overnight. Uh, We don't know how different Matthew may have looked, but we know that something significant must have happened. Because Matthew's name was changed from Levi to Matthew. Matthew went from being a tax collector to a gospel writer. And most importantly, we see that Matthew invited his friends to meet Jesus. That's significant. You know, if you find the person that you want to marry, you you introduce them to your friends. And your friends come and they stand with you as you make a commitment to them. Right? If you find a a new job and you're really excited about it, you you call up your friends and say, hey, I got this new opportunity. It's going to be really great. If you decide that you're going to move to a new town, you call your friends Mostly because you need them to help you move. But you still, you tell your friends about it. King, listen to this. When your entire life direction is changed because of the message of Jesus Christ, you need to introduce him to your friends. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 9. He said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Man, is that true. You know, if I knew the cancer or knew the cure for cancer, or if I knew the cure for AIDS, and I didn't share that with anybody, I didn't share it with somebody, a doctor, to be able to make a difference in someone's life, you would call me a criminal. We have and know the life changing, life saving message of Jesus Christ, and we need to share it with others. Because if you're going to heaven today, you're going because somebody told you. And somebody told that person, and somebody told that person before them. I often scare myself because I think and ask myself sometimes, is anybody going to go to heaven because of me? Because of what I've done? Or is the chain going to break with me? 
Is it going to stop with me? We know the truth, and it's, it's our privilege and obligation as a follower of Christ to be able to share that with others. That's the second indication. Here's the third. A disciple loves others. We didn't see that from the religious teachers of Jesus' day. In fact, this is what happened in Matthew 9. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked His disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Can you believe that the the people who ran the churches at that time didn't have compassion, didn't have mercy, saw a sinful lifestyle and just completely disassociated themselves with it, so much so that they called them names publicly, threw them down. Jesus says, no, a disciple must love others. In John 13, he says it this way, for your, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Did you know the phrase one another is used 58 times in the Bible? I don't know if you remember that old song. I tried to sing it first service. I'm not going to do it. They'll know we are Christians by our love. You know that song? Would someone know that you're a Christ follower? By your love today? You know, the best way to identify a disciple is by how they love others. And it's easy to love God because He's perfect. It's loving the imperfect people that's the discipline. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I, I hear this from time to time. Sometimes I'll meet people in the street and I'll be talking about what I do or I'll be talking about Christ and, and they'll say, well, you know what? I, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, Right? Because a lot of people, they've been hurt, they've been burned by the church. It makes sense. And I always respond this way. Well, if you don't love the people in the church, then you're not really going to like heaven. Because guess who's going to be there? Think of it this way. Here's another illustration. Jesus calls the church his bride. Okay, Those of you married men in the room, if someone came up to you and said, Hey, you know, I really like you, but I don't like your wife. Right? That's fighting words. You know what I'm saying? So how do we love those that are unlovable? Or more importantly, how do we love those that have wronged us? Well, for me, it starts with prayer. And I I have honest conversations with God. I say, Jesus, I'm finding it difficult to love this person. But I know that you love them. Teach me how to love them the way that you do. And what I have to do every day, as best of my ability, is to pray for that person. Because I'll tell you something, when you're praying for somebody... God does a number on your heart. God transforms the way you feel about somebody. And there's been people in my lives, in my life that I just couldn't stand at one point. And after praying for them, weeks, months, sometimes years, I love that person. I have compassion for that person. I want to do for that person because I've been talking to God about the well-being of that person. The third indication of being a disciple is that you love others. Here's the fourth one. A disciple serves others unselfishly. When Jesus heard those remarks about the sinful scum from the Pharisees, this is what He said in return. Verse 12. When Jesus heard this, He said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Paul said it this way in Philippians. Think of others as Uh, more highly than you think of yourself. Man, that's tough to do. Especially in our American culture. 
right? Where it's all about me. Where we got to be better than the other person to get ahead. Where sometimes we got to sell people out in order to to make it in life. Where we got places like Burger King where you can have it your way. And I've had it my way a lot. (laughs) What Jesus says is radical. He says, leadership isn't about how many serve you, but how many you serve. He said it this way in Mark 9. He sat down, called the twelve disciples over to him and said, Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Matthew was living a life all about him. He was very wealthy because he was stealing for a living. He was putting himself above others. He was taking from others. But from Jesus, he learned that we need to do more for others than we do for ourselves. You know, I've, I've gotten to meet a lot of people doing what I do for a living. I've met people who are wealthy. I've met people who are poor. I've met people who love their job. I've met people who hate their job. I've met older people, younger people, all different walks from life. And it doesn't matter what type of person I've met. I can distinguish the ones who have found happiness from the ones who don't. Because they find something really important in their life that we all search for. The key to happiness, if you will. And that is to find significance. But all of us, we take our turn kind of searching for significance in all the wrong places. Sometimes we search for significance in success, but success doesn't bring it. Salary doesn't bring significance. Status doesn't bring significance. Sex doesn't bring significance. Significance comes from service, from serving others, from making a difference in somebody's life. And the happiest people I've met in my life are the ones who give it all away, whether they have money or not. They give their lives away to make a difference in somebody else's life. There's a big fancy word in the church we use for this, and we call it ministry. And ministry is really exercising spiritual muscle, okay? Because what happens when you don't exercise? You take it in, you take it in, you take it in, you don't exercise, you end up looking like me, okay? Same goes spiritually. If we just come on Sunday mornings and we just sit and we listen and we write things down and we try to take it all in, we keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but we don't exercise it and we don't look like a disciple of Christ because we're not serving others. Here's the fifth and final one. A disciple obeys what Jesus tells them. Jesus said this to the Pharisees. Then he added, Now go and learning the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. We make a big mistake. I know I do. Sometimes we think that spiritual growth is measured in how much we know. It's not. Spiritual growth isn't measured by knowledge, but by obedience. By how much we obey. You know, I've known a lot of people who know a lot about the Bible, sure, a lot more than I do, but they don't follow it. They don't live it. Did you know that we forget 90 to 95% of what we hear in less than 72 hours? It's not very encouraging for those like me who prepare all week to give something, but we forget it. So it's not measured in knowledge, it's measured in obedience. Jesus said in John 8, So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you continue to obey my teaching, you are truly my followers. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. 
This verse comes with a promise. When we obey, we'll be set free. Free from what? From guilt, resentment, shame, bad habits, pressures that we feel from others, fear, anxiety, insecurity. I could go on and on. You know that pit in the bottom of your stomach? That feeling of guilt and shame and fear? It's not from God. That's tools from the enemy to be able to keep us down. What comes from God is conviction. Just the conviction to know that the way I've been living isn't right and that there's a better way to live out there. I wonder if you feel convicted this morning. I know I've felt convicted this week. But if you're convicted, you're in good company. Because this is how Jesus closes this story. He says in verse 13, For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus is offering Matthew, he's offering you, he's offering me a new direction, a new purpose, a life that matters. Most importantly, he's offering forgiveness. I just want to close with this story that I heard this past week about a a Dutch woman who lived uh, through the Second World War. She was a Jew, and she and her family were taken to a, a camp called Ravensbrook. She and her family were taken there, and her entire family died there. She was the only one to survive. After the war, she had come to a relationship with Christ, and she had realized the forgiving message that he, that, that he uh, brought. And she said to herself, if there's any kind of people, any group of people that need to hear this life-changing, life-saving message, it would be the people who lived in Nazi Germany, or especially around these death camps that she had been a member of. And so she began a tour to go to these different towns and gather people together and speak to them about God's love. And she would close her message the same way every time. She would say, God has taken our sin and He's thrown them deep into the sea and He's put up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. And so she would travel from town to town sharing this message. But she said in this book that I read this past week that one night as she was wrapping things up, a man in a trench coat and fedora hat walked toward her. And suddenly... She flashed back, and she saw that man wearing a military uniform with a skull and crossbones on his lapel and a helmet on his head because he had been a guard at the very death camp that she and her family had been in. And this man walked up to her and said, how good it is, with tears in his eyes, to know that God has taken our sins and thrown them deep into the sea. He said, I've done terrible things in the war, but I would like to hear it from your lips that you forgive me. This woman said that she flashed back to numerous times that her and her sister especially stood in front of this man and was ridiculed by this man, spat on him, and words that I don't even want to share this morning, things that had happened to her because of this man. And in that moment, she found it incredibly difficult at first. How could this guy want me to forgive him? But then she remembered all the times that she had gone to God 
and asked for the same kind of forgiveness for the way she had been living her life. And she remembered the forgiveness that God gave her. So she reached out her hand, shook his, and said, Brother, you are forgiven. And how good it truly is that God has taken away our sins, thrown them deep into the sea, and put up a sign that says, No fishing allowed. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this place. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the new opportunities that you offer us each day. Opportunities for a a new and changed life. A new direction. Lord, I just pray that uh, as we leave this place, we would remember you, we would remember these opportunities, we would remember your word, Lord. God, help us to look different. Help us to look more like you. It's in your precious son's name we all pray. Amen.